I hated CBGB. I never even went to see a show there, but I had to play a solo acoustic set once for one of those music seminars. And I asked for some water. The waitress just looked so mad. She's like, we don't give water away for free here. The owner says it takes up too much money. (laughs) (laughs) To me, that was CBGB's. your speakers up to 11 because it's time for Too Much Effing Perspective, the podcast that asks musicians and entertainers to relive their most final tap moments when nothing goes right and everything gets kind of weird. I'm your host, Alan Keller, a comedy writer in LA and former lead singer of the least heralded Chicago band, The Falling Walendas. And I'm your co-host, Alex Hoffman, former tour manager for Radiohead and former lead singer of the least heralded Milwaukee band, The Vainglorious. Our guest today is lead guitarist for one of the most influential Seattle grunge bands, Mud Honey's Steve Turner. We talked to Steve about the time he was asked to join Nirvana as our second guitarist, what it was like to share a bed with Hearts Nancy Wilson, and the disagreement with future Pearl Jam members Stone Gossert and Jeff Amon that caused Steve to leave what many consider to be the original grunge band, Green River. So without further ado, let's go to the TMEP show! It really puts perspective on things, doesn't it? Not yeah. too much. There's oh, too yeah, much fucking perspective now. Alex, compromise is often a good thing. At work, in marriage, when you get pulled over by the cops for speeding and... She tells you what the fine is, and you tell her how much you're willing to pay. And uh, Alan, it doesn't work that way. All right. Well, compromise works out for everyone usually, but <laughs> the one place where it does not work out ever, in fact, it's a dirty word, is in art. The reason artists create in the first place is to convey their unique vision of the world to the world, undiluted, unfettered, uncompromised, and if they are not strong enough to fight for their vision or worse, are willing to compromise it in order to get along or make money, then they are more entertainers than artists. And entertainers want to please people, whereas artists want to enlighten them. I think our listeners are starting to get a sense of what I have to deal with putting on this show as a quote unquote partner. It's Alan's uncompromising vision. I have compromised many times, but for sure once. That was last season. I'm not sure which episode it was, but I vividly remember having that bad feeling of having compromised. (laughs) (laughs) Sell out. Well, look, I think there are lots of compromises in bands. I mean, that's one of the reasons they stay together. Au contraire. That's why they break up virtually every time. I know you hate when I bring up the Beatles every episode or two, (laughs) but by the end... Obviously, if you saw Get Back, John, George, and Paul all felt like they were compromising too much and they wanted to go on their own, and they did. And how'd that one work out? I'm sure that even you, Alan, would say that the Beatles as a whole, four artists who compromised their respective visions for a collective one, are far better than they were on their own. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> and our guest today... Steve Turner told us that whenever he was asked to compromise his artistic vision, he refused. He may have passed up some big opportunities to do that, 
But in my effing perspective, after talking to him, he never regretted it. Do you agree? I'm still trying to think of a comeback for that whole Beatles debacle. <laughs> well, listeners, while we're waiting for Alan to compromise and admit that I was right. I'm not doing it. We're, we're going to talk with Steve Turner, who, along with singer Mark Arm, drummer Dan Peters, and bassist Guy Madison, put out Mud Honey's most recent album, Plastic Eternity, on Sub Pop Records. But first, a short break. Well, hey, friends, my name is Zach Lupiton. You may know me from the band Dust Bowl Revival, but I also host a music discovery podcast called The Show on the Road. For the last five seasons, I've been able to dive deep and have intimate chats with folks like the Lumineers, Andy DeFranco, Wolfpack, Keb Moe, Lake Street Dive, Bela Fleck, and more. So guess what? After 150 conversations with some of my favorite songwriters from around the world, we are bringing brand new episodes to the Osiris Network. New interviews and intimate acoustic performances will be coming at you this summer. And which episodes are coming next, you ask? I am Zach Goody, the lead singer for the band Smash Mouth. Our band is called Milky Chance. We are based in Berlin. My name is David Shaw. I sing and write songs with my band, The Revivalists. Trust me, these conversations go some wild places. So subscribe to the show on the road on Osiris, and we'll see you soon. This is Krista Makes, guitarist and vocalist for Less Than Jake, and host of Krista Makes a Podcast. A songwriting podcast where every week I'm joined by an amazing guest to break down the writing, recording, and release of one iconic song from their career. In our giant evergreen back catalog of episodes, we've had rock legends such as Dee Snyder and Huey Lewis, punk rock favorites like Mark Hoppus, Fat Mike, and Brett Gurowitz, and up-and-coming artists of today such as Liz Stokes of The Beths and Genesis Owusu. We've had guests from all genres and styles of music, and I guarantee that if you peruse our back catalog, you'll see several episodes that'll make you say, man, I gotta hear that. Whether you're a fan of music or a creator of music yourself, you'll take away a whole new appreciation for the songs you know and love. Chris Makes a Podcast is available for free on all the places you could possibly listen to podcasts, and new episodes come out every Monday. And now, the author of the definitive book on grunge, Mudride, A Messy Trip Through the Grunge Explosion, Mud Honey guitarist, Steve Turner. Uh, well, nice to see you, Steve. Thank you so much for joining us today. Sure. It's a pleasure to have you on. We're just going to start with a very simple question for you. In the movie, This is Spinal Tap, what is your favorite scene? Uh, you know, I watched almost all of it a couple nights ago again, and being in a rock band and killing time on tour buses in Europe, we've probably watched that movie together as Mudhoney probably 50 times. And somehow you always catch something that you didn't catch the time before, you know? And I think my favorite thing that Dan, our drummer, caught once was when they're lost underneath the stage and they run into Bo Diddley as the janitor, right? And Bo Diddley's giving them directions. And at some point he says, I just jogged to the left. And one of the, the guys says, jog, we don't have time for that. <laughs> <laughs> that is also the favorite scene of our first guest we ever had on the show, the drummer from Styx and my band, The Falling Walendas, Todd Zuckerman, who actually played with Spinal Tap on a couple occasions. Mm -hmm. 
And it's not Bo Diddley. That's another guy who actually, what was his name? He's got a great name. He does have a wonderful name, Alan. We don't remember what it is. Oh, yeah. You just said it. It's wonderful. Wonderful Smith. That's his name. But it's not Bo Diddley. Ah, uh, dang. Yeah. I know more about Bo Diddley maybe than Spinal Tap. <laughs> <laughs> My friend Ty Durbro says that you are his second favorite guitarist after Eddie Van Halen. <laughs> and Ty said, I couldn't copy Eddie Van Halen, but I heard Steve Turner and I said, I can do that. <laughs> and that deeply influenced his guitar playing. That's great. So as a guitar player himself, Ty told me that he's really curious about your fuzz pedal collection. And of course, your acclaimed debut EP was called Super Fuzz Big Muff, right? Yeah. So- Bringing this into the Spinal Tap moment context, any oddball stories you can share about acquiring or using your fuzz pedals? The closest thing to a Spinal Tap story with a fuzz box would be one of the times we played LA, Mark jumped into the crowd and hit somebody in the head and that really pissed this guy off. So for some reason, he stole one of my boxes off the stage, a Memphis distortion, which is just kind of a cheap knockoff of an MXR. And somehow, I think he was trying to sell it on eBay like 15 years later. Wow. And it really pissed Mark off. So he got a hold of the guy and the guy was a lawyer now and he threatened to sue Mark. <laughs> huh. And he seemed like crazy. We looked him up. This was early days of the internet. And I don't even think he was actually a practicing lawyer at this point. He'd had some legal troubles and he was clearly off his nut. <laughs> so we just kind of let it go. So I almost got the box back, but then it was crazy lawyer guy. I need to like sue Mark. Yeah, so Mark's like, okay, we're not touching this. <laughs> That's so funny. You brought up the internet, the early days of the internet. My band, The Falling Melendez, was part of the Chicago scene of the early 90s, and Mud Honey was part of the Seattle grunge scene that happened right before the Chicago scene. And I think those two cities were really the last two scenes to hit before the internet took off and killed off all that kind of regionalism. Sure. And the impact on me is that you can't find my band, The Falling Melendas, anywhere on the internet. When we were at least somewhat known, all our press was on something called, and maybe our listeners haven't heard of this before, newspapers <laughs> and magazines. And so I was wondering, Mudhoney also was pre-internet for the most part. How has that impacted your notoriety? Well, we got to see the last of the truly independent music scene of the 80s, I think, when we first toured, it, it was still very regional. One of the best examples was going to Kansas City on our first tour in the fall of 88 and how differently they dance and their whole thing was just completely off the rails. Hmm. We went to this house party after the show. It was all these young dudes with their shirts off, slam dancing with giant cardboard boxes, <laughs> like cardboard boxes that a refrigerator would go in. And they were just bouncing off of them and trashing the crap out of these cardboard boxes in the basement. <laughs> we're like, well, never seen this before. <laughs> That's different. It wasn't just the internet either. MTV kind of spread the culture just before the internet kind of, right? Where the mosh pit was a regional thing and stage diving was different in different places. In Seattle, in the early to mid 80s, we had this thing. We kind of did the salmon spawning thing where we <laughs> jumped onto the stage like fish. We didn't really jump off the stage as much. 
some people did, but it was mainly making a very slow motion pig pile on the stage, which I'm sure the bands love. <laughs> <laughs> Remember the guy, the Pogo guy in Madison? Oh, yes. Marco Pogo. <laughs> oh, yeah. Marco Pogo. Oh, God. You know, he came to so many shows that I booked at the Wisconsin Student Union. He would just Pogo up and down at every show. He was there, right? Yeah. Austin still has a guy that I can't remember his name. He's got a clever name as well, but he still goes to shows and acts the same as he did in the late 70s. <laughs> I wonder if the same guy, I mean, he just kept pogoing all the way to Austin. <laughs> <laughs> so I was wondering, any strange mud honey heads or Green River heads that you remember to this day? Maybe they're still around. Maybe they're in your basement right now. Smashing boxes. Oh, there, there's characters out there. There's a real Seattle character named Chad. But in the early to mid 80s, he went as Slam Hate. That was his punk name. Nice. And he was a real sweetheart, kind of a big guy, kind of lumbering guy. But he was at all the shows all the time. And I can't, I'm try, trying to remember what his girlfriend's name was because it was equally as ridiculous as Slam Hate. But yeah, he still is in Seattle. He doesn't come to very many shows anymore, but he works at the Pike Place Market. So I still run into him every so often. <laughs> Stone Gossard from Green River and then Pearl Jam, of course, he said Chad was coming to the last Mud Honey show in Seattle, but Stone failed to get him out of the house. Because <laughs> we're like, Chad's coming, Slam 8's coming. <laughs> Speaking of Stone, I want to ask you about your new book. Mud Ride, A Messy Trip Through the Grunge Explosion. In the foreword, he said, I love you, Steve. Thank you for lowering the bar for everyone. <laughs> what the hell do you mean by that? I love Stone. He's one of my closest friends. But, you know, he can be snarky. I'm snarky about <laughs> Green River and Mother Lovebone in the book. There's a reason we weren't in a band together for all these years. But we're great friends. And I love that. Because I did not want to get better on guitar. I thought I was plenty good in 1984, and I argued that so much of my music that I loved and still love is garage rock made by people that just picked up instruments recently, be it hardcore or 60s garage or whatever. So to me, I always thought getting better was the enemy. So I never practiced. I mean, I finally gave in and started trying to get better at one point, but only on acoustic guitar. <laughs> the electric stuff, there's two finger bar chords. And just kind of wing it on solos and stuff. One of my best examples of what not to do is I love the kinks, the 60s kinks up through the early 70s. And then it's like Dave Davies got too good on guitar and his solos just sounded like generic hard rock Ted Nugent dude solos instead of that singular thing that he did in the 60s. He got too good to be Dave Davies. <laughs> so then he was just a generic guitar player. There's really something to that. I was talking to my daughter's friend and she had given up guitar and said she just wasn't getting any better. And I said, listen to me, I suck. <laughs> and that's the key to my writing. I can only play my one fucked up way. And that's why I have, I think, a certain style. Yeah. And there's certain people that have said things about my guitar playing that I think is awesome. Jack and Dino, the producer, he analyzes things. He's a total egghead when it comes to this stuff and what he figured out and it kind of ruined me for a little while he goes i finally figured out what it is you do you're always two frets below where you should be when you're soloing <laughs> <laughs> made me overthink it for a while I'm like wait, I'm, wait what do you mean 
That's interesting. You know, I'm like, well, it t- sounds good. I, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's the thing. Like, we had a guitar player in our band who was great. His name was Arch Alcantara. And I remember we were in the studio recording our album, and he started doing, uh, what's the the, the Rush song? Is that- um, oh, Spirit of Radio. Spirit of the Radio, yeah. right? And I'm like, wow, that is so amazing. And he's like, Alan, I wish I couldn't play this. I wish I could play like you, because what you're doing, yeah. I can't play- and I don't think anyone else can, nor would they want to. But right. you know, and I think that you can use your deficiencies to your advantage, right? And you know, there's certain bands that are more our favorites, the cornerstones of a lot of what we do, like Flipper. And I swear, I'd have no idea what that guitar player is ever doing. It doesn't make any sense. I don't know if he's tuned differently. I watch his fingers, and I look, at, and I hear. I go like, nope, none of it makes sense to me. So I want to go back to Mud Ride. You have your own great line in the intro where you said, there's absolutely a line where bands make a decision that pushes them one way or the other. When a record label suggests that you need to, quote, sweeten your guitar sound, get a singer with the right look and vocal range, or write something that can be played in the radio, you either acquiesce or tell them to go fuck themselves. We always chose the latter. <laughs> when you chose the path of saying, go fuck yourself, can you think of a Spinal Tap moment or two that came out of that decision-making? Sure. After we did Every Good Boy Deserves Fudge in 1991, that's when it came out. And this is before Nirvana hit big and Sub Pop was struggling financially. We decided to leave Sub Pop. And our first idea was to go straight to Caroline Records, who was hmm. distributing Sub Pop at that point, who had Smashing Pumpkins on it. Right. So we met with the head of Caroline he literally said to us, well, you know, you guys are going to have to sweeten up your guitar sounds a little bit and toured nine months out of the year like the Smashing Pumpkins do. And we just looked at him like, no, we don't. <laughs> we don't do that. <laughs> We'd been touring for like three years at that point. We're like, no, why would we sweeten up our guitar sounds to do anything? I mean, we will do what we want to do. If that requires more gentle guitar sound, that's fine. But he literally said, basically act like the Smashing Pumpkins. And so that's what made us decide, well, if the guy from Caroline is telling us this, we might as well talk to the major labels because they couldn't tell us anything worse. Right. And right. So ended up on, and they didn't say any of that. Cause like we did every good boy deserves fudge on an eight track recording machine in the basement. And the guys there were like, yeah, a lot of the best records were made on eight track. Not a problem. So Caroline was really the only label that was barely even a notch up from sub pop at the yeah. time. Really, it was, and they were the ones telling us to sweeten our guitar sounds. And we're like, no. Well, I think they probably hired Bobby Fleckman, <laughs> and that's why. <laughs> this gets me to thinking that you know, not all disagreements are between the band and the record label. Most come from inside the band. For example, in Green River, there was a major split between you and Mark Arm and Stone and Jeff. What was that about, and when did it reach a breaking point? Well, I left early on. I left after the first Green River record because it was very different directions we were going at that time. They were really into Iron Maiden and like more of kind of a commercial hard rock, heavy metal stuff. And I had just discovered Billy Childish and I was completely obsessing on teenage 60s garage bands. And it was obvious that I 
needed to get out of there. Green River got way better after I left. <laughs> they did. They got Bruce Fairweather on guitar and he kind of simmered them down into more of a kind of a Aerosmith kind of classic rock kind of groove instead of a more overtly metal thing. And that's when they made their better records, like after I left. I mean, honestly, you actually don't hear that very often. I realized it was my time and I bowed out as opposed to, you know, stuff being thrown or names being called or right. things like that. I say it in the book. I was a total asshole before I left the band. I realized I was like, God, I'm being such a freaking jerk here. You know, I need to get out of this band and let them just go on their merry way. <laughs> you know, I'm glad you said that because after watching a bunch of interviews with you and Mark Arm, I was struck by the generosity of spirit between you guys and the other Seattle bands. Am I wrong to think that there was a sense of camaraderie in that grunge scene? We were all pretty close and good friends. It didn't feel competitive to me ever because there was nothing to compete for, really. You know, it just didn't matter. We had the same hundred people coming to all of our shows. And then we'd go to the same house party after the show and, you know, argue about music, but in a friendly way. It was like, okay, well, which band of ours is going to play together next weekend or next Tuesday night? Because there was a couple of years where we had Tuesday and Wednesday nights, basically, at the clubs where we could play our original music or whatever you wanted to call it. Yeah, but, you know, there's always a zero-sum mentality where your success is going to somehow diminish me. And it's right. refreshing to see, like, you know, even the fact that you were asked to be the second guitarist in Nirvana. And like, we read about it and you're like, they didn't need me. And I'm glad I didn't do it. And all the power to those guys. And you just don't hear that that much. I wish I had given it a try and recorded a song or two with them. Right. Because our drummer, Dan, recorded one song with them and he still gets nice little paychecks every now and again. But, you know, that was a different thing. I mean, after Green River broke up, finally, Mark and I were going to start doing another band together, but we really hadn't gotten it together yet because I was living up in Bellingham, Washington, going to college. And he and some of his buddies were doing a cover band just for fun. And the first name for Mother Love Bone was the Lords of the Wasteland. <laughs> and they played a show billed as the Lords of the Wasteland. And Mark, I'm pretty sure it was Mark because he's a funny guy, came up with the idea of calling their cover band the Wasted Landlords, <laughs> <laughs> which absolutely just destroyed the whole idea of the band name, the Lords of the Wasteland, which just took all the wind out of the Pretty sails honest. of those guys. <laughs> so they came up with Mother Love Bone. Well, I come from a band called Women's Liberace, so I shouldn't talk. That's pretty good. <laughs> I don't think it overstates things to say that the Beatles were the greatest gift to entertainment and culture of our time, a secular religion, if you will, with their universal appeal and demonstrable impact on people's lives. I'm Robert Rodriguez, host of Something About the Beatles. With every episode, I speak with historians, musicians, artists, and Beatle witnesses, all in the service of fresh insights into the most joyous cultural entity the world has ever known. I hope you'll join me 
and listen to Something About the Beatles, now on Evergreen and wherever you get your podcasts. Cobain. Of George Michael, of Otis Redding, of Amy Winehouse, of Michael Hutchins, Bob Marley. This is the story of Prince. It's a new podcast series. About how they died, why they died, and why we're still talking about them so long after. It's like nothing you've ever heard before. It's storytelling. But it's more than that, because rock stars... They tell us how we feel. They change our mood. They change the clothes we wear. The people we hang out with. The way we remember things. It's them who give us those ludicrous moments. The ones where you're... Jumping around, singing your heart out, feeling understood. And it's those moments we'll help you remember. The ones you're thinking about right now. That feeling. That feeling. It's coming soon from Crowd Network. Just search for Death of a Rockstar on your podcast app. And subscribe now. Steve, let's do a grunge rapid fire. I'll mention someone from the scene and you share a spinal tap moment with that person. Okay? Okay. All right, great. Let's start. Courtney Love. I met Courtney early on. Her band Hole was coming through town, like late 80s. And I don't even know if I was at her show or some other show. She cornered me and she had this kind of like a rehearsed backstory that she would tell everybody. Whereas like, I didn't ask you where you used to work. <laughs> I was a stripper up in Alaska and then Japan. <laughs> a Arabian prince offered to marry me for money or whatever. And, you know, my dad managed the Grateful Dead and I bought my car <laughs> from Fred and Tootie from Dead Moon because I think she knew that would impress me. So it was just like a barrage of like way too much information <laughs> that she had. And that always seemed really funny to me. Uh, and the other one, maybe a year later when they were still touring and I was living in a group house with Dan Peters, our drummer and Ed Fotheringham, who did all the drawings and illustrations for a lot of our records and stuff. He answered the phone from Courtney one day and left a note hammered to the wall. It was part of a 12 pack of beer, you know, because the inside he ripped it off <laughs> right. and wrote, Steve, your friend Courtney Love called and asked if she and her band can stay here this weekend. No, Love Ed. <laughs> and we had that on the wall for like a year, I think, because it was just so indicative. Because we let anybody stay in our house. It was a party house. You know, we had the cows stay at our house, for God's sakes. But yeah, that was a bridge too far for Ed after he talked to her on the phone for probably 30 minutes. <laughs> oh, oh, that's super funny. In fact, I feel like when I was on tour, we showed up at a hotel one morning got off the bus and I walked in and Hole had been there the night before or two nights before and like torn a bunch of shit up and stuff like that. So they were a little <laughs> off bands right. when we arrived. We did a tour of the UK with Hole. I enjoyed the band and the people. I, I never had much ill will towards Courtney or anything. It was her show and the other four members of Hole were just kind of forgotten bystanders and they changed. But the original lineup was a pretty great band and I really dug hanging out with them all. But Courtney got a little, you know, I mean, I always just thought she was crazy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I love some of the whole song. Yeah. A lot of power. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know anything about her at this point. I haven't seen her since probably two months after Kurt died. And 
I read the same stuff everyone else reads in the press. I'm always just like, oh my God. Yeah. 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 So speaking of Kurt, how about Kurt? Kurt Cobain. Um, he was very shy. You know, we did a lot of shows together and we would see each other quite often, but I just couldn't find a way in. We had nothing to talk about, it seemed like. I mean, Nova Selleck, he just wants to talk about Mustang guitars and goofy, weird shit like that. You know, I'd known Chris way before Nirvana started because he was just the dude that was also in the Melvins van hmm. in the early Melvin days. And Dave was a super nice guy. He replaced Dan, our drummer. You know, so there's always a little bit of a like, mm. <laughs> for Dan anyway. Wow. Was Dan between Chad Channing and Dave? Yeah. Oh, I didn't even know that. He was in there for like a month or two and they played one show, their legendary show at the, um, God, what was the place called? They only had a few shows there. It was a old parking lot basically. And he recorded one song with them. Grandma take me home song. That's him drumming. So that's where he still gets his uh, Nirvana residuals. <laughs> and he did one photo shoot and one interview in a magazine. He did one of everything with Nirvana. <laughs> that's fascinating. Yeah. Wow. Okay. How about Eddie Vedder? He's a great, great human all around. A super nice guy. He was really smart the way he met us. You know, like I said, I lived at this house with a bunch of rockers and a photographer from LA, Chris Cafaro, was assigned to come take mud honey pictures so we convened at our house and his assistant for the photo shoot was ed vetter but he didn't say that he just said his name was ed and we were hanging out drinking beer and talking because photo shoots take a while sometimes and if this seemed like it was an all-day event <laughs> and a lot of beer was drunk and then he finally said yeah you know, i'm singing in the new band with stone and jeff that <laughs> it was called at that point i think it was mookie blaylock and so he kind of creeped it because he was such a cool guy. I guess talking about surfing and, you know, this, that, and the other thing. And then he kind of let it out that he was the new singer of those guys. Like, well, we already love this guy. So now we can't bitch about him. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. That's a great one. Uh, yeah. He's just a nice guy. My girlfriend is a huge Pearl Jam fan. She knows way more about that band than I do. She's pointed out a lot of the live versions of songs. He is not singing any of the lyrics. He's just like, no, run, 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 run. You know, he can't remember them because they do so many songs a night live and they switch it up. I know Stone told me a few years back before the pandemic that they were expected to know like 75 songs or something like that. Whoa. Because they play for like three hours. Yeah. And they want to always make every show a little bit different. I want to tell Nettie Vetter's story that I got really lucky when Pearl Jam was on their first tour on 10, right? That was their first major level record. They came through Milwaukee. They played at Marquette University at this small theater called the Varsity Theater that holds maybe 800 or 1,000 people. And I had just gotten back from my first tour, tour managing the Bodines. And I did not have a ticket for the show, but I just went to the box office, held up my tour laminate and said, I'm the Bodine's tour manager. Can I get in? Sure, they waved me through. So that was nice. <laughs> and I really didn't even know Pearl Jam's music, but I was really curious. And at some point in the show, Eddie did this thing where he climbed up on the lighting truss, which I think became part of his routine. But he yeah. was kind of up in the middle of the thing. And there was a point at which he realized he actually didn't know how to get down <laughs> and was kind of stuck. So he signaled to the roadie, to swing the microphone up, kind of Roger Daltrey style, right? Swing it up to him so he could grab it, which he caught it. 
and he lowered the mic back down to the stage and tried to slide down the court almost like a fire pole. Yikes. (laughs) But he had to have been probably 10 feet from the stage when the mic cord snapped. Oh, man. And the band didn't miss a beat, by the way. So Eddie fell, hit the stage, jumped right back up and started dancing as the band just kept jamming. So it was an awesome rock and roll moment, but it was pretty wacky. There's some scary photos of him in those early days up on the lighting rigs, man. Like I'm like, geez, man, that could have gone really bad. <laughs> Foolish young men. Yeah, ex- exactly. What about Lane Staley? I didn't really know Lane Staley. Yeah, I met him a few times. It seemed like a nice guy. I knew Jerry a little bit mm. in the mid-90s. At some point in the grip of grunge mania, K2 Ski Company thought they were going to do a mud honey snowboard, so they gave us uh, prototype snowboards and all the gear. Neat. I, I'm a skateboarder, but I've never gone snowboarding. So suddenly me and Mark had all the gear. So we're like, well, I guess we're going to go learn how to snowboard now. <laughs> and so somehow I ended up going snowboarding quite a few times with Stone Gossard, Mark Arm, and Jerry from Alice in Chains. That's so great. And it was really fun. Like Jerry's an awesome dude, but they didn't come from the exact same world that we came from and nothing against it, but they were heavy metal dudes. And we were all kind of punk dudes, but there was a close relationship between the two scenes in Seattle. I'd just never seen their earlier bands because I was kind of an avowed dude that did not like heavy metal. I don't consider ACDC or Motorhead heavy metal. So those bands get a pass, but the heavy metal stuff just never interested me that much, like Slayer or the glam stuff. I like the glam stuff more now than I, I used to, but anyway, so I didn't know those guys, including Lane. And I think I only met Lane when we did the Monkey Wrench radio sessions, which was Pearl Jam's radio show they did in the 90s. And a bunch of us all played in this little house that some of them used to rehearse at in Seattle. And, uh, you know, I think he was already kind of a mess by the time I met him. And I wasn't ever a drug guy. So, you know. Another Seattleite that we had a wonderful conversation with Nancy Wilson from Heart she was sharing a Seattle-specific Spinal Tap moment, which was the release party for the film Singles, yep. which was held at the Edgewater Hotel. And she did mention seeing Mark Arm, your bandmate, throw up into a planter <laughs> at the party. And I'm wondering, what were you doing, Steve? I was laying on a bed with Nancy Wilson for a little while. Oh, no, <laughs> you lucky guy. She probably had no idea who I was, but it was a, just one of the rooms full of people, and it was me and her not doing anything just sitting on a bed drinking beer and talking with everybody but so i i can say i have been in bed with nancy wilson that's well you know what by that same yardstick i can say i've been in bed with cheryl crow because when i was on tour with the bodines back in 93 believe it or not cheryl crow was opening and we had a night off in nashville because the two main guys sam and kurt had to go to new york to play letterman so we were sitting together in the room watching the Letterman performance, and I was on the bed next to Cheryl enjoying that. So <laughs> lucky man. You are both my idols. <laughs> and I'll tell you, Nancy Wilson, we interviewed her. She was so nice. Just wonderful. Yeah. In that era in the early 90s, Hart was very supportive of what was happening in Seattle. She seemed to be really proud of the scene. Yeah, I think they were pretty energized by it because... 70s Seattle, they were all alone, man. There was nothing else happening from Seattle, if you think about it, except heart. Right. I'd like to ask about two more people, Steve. This is kind of going away from Seattle folks, but certainly folks with whom you've interacted a lot. So 
Didn't Wayne Kramer, the MC5, play in Mud Honey for a while? He did one song with us. Oh. It was after our original bass player, Matt Lucan, had quit. And we weren't sure if we were going to continue or not. And we took a year off. Mark and I did a record with one of our other bands, <laughs> Monkey Wrench. <laughs> and just kind of ignored the whole situation for a year. And then after a year, we are kind of pondering what to do. Like, I still wanted to play music with Mark in whatever capacity and Dan. And so we thought about, well, we could just continue as a three piece of three of us. And I was like, I can play bass and guitar and we can record stuff. And at the same time, Wayne Kramer had some of that kind of silly Hollywood money to put out a compilation record of bands like punk past and future or something like that. And he wanted us on it. So he came up to Seattle and met us. And that was super exciting. I brought my copy of the MC five back in USA album on eight track and had him <laughs> sign it for me. Awesome. <laughs> and he was downstairs in the room when we were kind of playing this idea for a song that we had. And he kind of looks at the room and was like, do you guys not have a bass player? <laughs> and I was like, well, you know, I'll probably just play bass in the studio on it. And he said, well, what if I just play along right now on the bass? And so he did. Nice. And it was so much better than anything I would have thought up to play on the bass. <laughs> but I realized my theory of being able to do both bass and guitar in a, the same band was completely wackadoodle. We were very happy and thankful and excited to have him play the bass on one song. You would consider that MC5 is a heavy influence for you guys, wouldn't you say? Yeah, no doubt. Yeah. You know, we argue amongst ourselves, which is our favorite MC5 record. I don't really care for their first record that much. It's a little too sloppy in a weird way, which sounds even dumber now that I just said it out loud. <laughs> <laughs> it's on tape and it never goes away. <laughs> yeah. I love Back in the USA. I mean, I can do without the Chuck Berry covers on it, but I love that record. And the third record, High Time, I think, is what we all decide to agree on as our favorite MC5 record. Because it's kind of heavy. I mean, Mark also sang in the reconstituted MC5, remember? Oh. Oh. But yeah, he was there for Unsung. That's cool. cool. I did not know that about Mark. Yeah, he did a, a whole world tour. Oh, wow. Like in the early 2000s, whenever they were doing that, when there were still several of them alive. Yeah. Wayne is healthy as hell, though. He doesn't look anywhere near his age. And then last, you know, one of Mudhoney's early tours was with Sonic Youth in the UK. How about Kim Gordon? Oh, man. In 1983, I bought Confusion of Sex, and that record kind of blew my mind. And then I bought their first record because that was the only other one they had at the time. And they came to, through Seattle really early on, and they had Green River open for them while I was still in Green River, maybe early 85. And then after I left Green River... They played another show with Green River maybe a year later, and Thurston in particular was pretty turned on by what was happening in Seattle, I think. He's the total record nerd of the band. Apologies to the other members, but <laughs> Thurston wins for re record nerd Atlanta, I think. <laughs> but yeah, so they were very early in helping Mudhoney a lot, and they lent their credibility to us in a way. We toured the States with them in the fall of 88, and then did the UK in the spring of 89. It was a blast and, you know, they're awesome people. And any Spinal Tap moments from those early tours with them? Well, one of the funniest things is our first show with them was in Newcastle, UK, and it's known for Newcastle Brown Ale, right? Yeah, love it. And that's the only time I've ever seen Thurston drunk was that first night on tour with us. I think he felt he needed to uh, 
try to keep up and they realized there's no keeping up with <laughs> my honey at that era. This, that was funny because he was drunk <laughs> and I still pals with Thurston. And if he comes through Portland, I will still go pick him up and take him to record stores. That <laughs> kid's awesome. I haven't seen her for a while. She just turned 70. Yeah. She was five years older than Thurston from what I remember. And she still is. <laughs> I read Kim's book. It was awesome. I'm really looking forward to Thurston's book because if no other reason, the photo they picked for his book is very much like the photo on the cover of my book. And so I text him like, dude, our books look the same. <laughs> <laughs> Steve, thanks for swapping all these stories with us. Where can our listeners keep up on Mudhoney, find the new album, Plastic Eternity, learn more about your projects? Your book. Your book. Man, you can find out all about Mudhoney on social medias like Instagram. I'm Steve's Bad Ideas on Instagram. <laughs> I know Mudhoney just came back from Australia not too long ago. Do you have yeah. tour dates the rest of this year? We do. We're going back on tour around October 15th for a little over a month in the States. So we'll be all over the East Coast, through the South, West Coast, Midwest. It's hard to do the States a month. Yeah. A lot of driving. Been there, done that. Yes. Big country. It is. Too big. <laughs> all right, Steve. Thank you so much. This has been a lot of fun. Yes. Great meeting you. And thanks for sharing your great stories. Sure thing, man. Thank you. It was fun. Listeners, your friend Courtney Love called and asked if she and her band can stay at your house this weekend. No. Love the TMEP show. We sure appreciate Steve Turner taking us on this mud ride. Definitely worth the dry cleaning bill. And special thanks to Mike Fontana Rosa for recommending that we talk with Steve and making the introduction. It is always nice to meet the neighbors. I didn't even know we were neighbors. Too Much Effing Perspective is a Milwaukee Talkies original. Our editor is Gretchen Kilby. Our music composer is J.K. Harrison. Please follow us on Instagram and Facebook at TMEP Show and sign up for emails on our website. That's TMEPshow.com. Although it would be as great as having armadillos in our trousers, this podcast is not affiliated with This Is Spinal Tap and no person or entity connected with the film has sponsored or endorsed its content. This podcast is not affiliated, sponsored, or licensed by Authorized Spinal Tap LLC or Century of Progress Productions. Well, hey, podcast listener. My name is Vince, and I'm the host of a show called The RR Show. It stands for Reddit Readings. We're going to sit down twice a week, and I'm going to bring you the most entertaining stories from all of the best subreddits that exist online. Things like malicious compliance, petty revenge, hey, lady, I don't work here. Oh, there's so much more. Lots of great stories and things you won't believe. Like the one time uh, this dude was caught in a bathroom with his friend and he was slapping them because that was the only way that he could actually legitimately help them. A mall cop comes in with a taser. Oh, yeah, the rest is history. It's going to be fun. There's, uh, well, I don't know, I got like 20 seconds left, so I don't got much more time to tell you another story. But just join me on The RR Show. It's from Evergreen Podcast, produced in partnership with Wessler Media. So The RR Show. 
Wherever you get podcasts, subscribe today. And uh, it's like an adult story time. Let's hang out together. The RR Show. Subscribe today wherever you get your podcasts. Evergreen Podcast Network.